Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stories that Tom and Jay look at this week include preparing for the dawn raid in the era of hybrid work, when you fight corruption, it fights back, supply chain issues and compliance, board effectiveness survey, new OECD anti-bribery and a corruption suggestions for your compliance program. How about graybeards and young bloods working together? Is trust in companies shockingly low? Are senior level compliance positions now harder to find and fill? What is the role of PwC in the ongoing Tesla JP Morgan dispute? How will tech change the work landscape in 2022? Mrs. Monitor opines. A podcast series with Nick and Gio Gallo on Compliance ROI, a new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network by Professor Karen Woody. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, the Happy Hanukkah edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 279, for the week ending December 20, 2021, the Happy Hanukkah edition. As Hanukkah has come early this year, and the Rosen household is beginning its annual celebration, we are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in this Happy Hanukkah edition. Jay, what say ye? I say it's going to be the fifth night of Hanukkah, and let's open up these 10 stories and see what's happening in the world of FCPA ethics and compliance. So, Jay, we first uh, start off with the first of a trilogy of articles this week from the uh, FCPA blog, and this one comes to us from Andrew Reeves and Annie Birch, who are with uh, Norton Rose. And they talk about dawn raids. And this is something that I think most compliance professionals are at least aware of. But they have a different spin to it, Jay. And it is a dawn raid in the era of work from home or the era of hybrid work. So what happens when you have a dawn raid in the hybrid working era? Uh, number one, I, th- I find that to be incredibly scary that at six in the morning, someone's going to come knocking at my door wanting to confiscate my computer, uh, particularly when uh, I don't know of anything I've done wrong or I don't think I've done anything wrong. Nevertheless, uh, this is a real thing. 
uh, it seems to be a thing in the United Kingdom because both of these lawyers practice in uh, Norton Rose's uh, London office. Uh, but nevertheless, they detail types of raids that uh, the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom is doing. Uh, the, there's hybrid raids, which you raid the company's offices and other homes of key individuals. There's disguised dawn raids, uh, which is extraordinarily uh, invidious, uh, where a meeting noticed effectively turns into a dawn raid. Uh, Jay, I would note that um, this, uh, this type of raid uh, actually reaches back uh, to antiquity with what was used to be called a safe conduct past, where uh, if you come and parlay with us, you'll have safe conduct to and from the parlay. Uh, obviously made uh, uh, famous by Johnny Depp, but um, it was well-known within the Catholic Church. It's well-known within ancient Greece, but in 2021, eh, maybe not. So uh, if you get called to a meeting, you might want to get some parameters set. And then, of course, quick turnaround compelled responses, which is when uh, the regulators want information uh, basically a broad request for data dumps uh, pretty quickly, as in very quickly, as in now. So um, regulators responding to the new hybrid work era with different types of raids. What should you do? Well, obviously review your current policies. Um, once again, I hope you have this uh, as a policy. Every corporation should have a dawn raid policy. Map out your data. Know where your data is. If you don't understand what that means, call Jonathan Armstrong. Train your core team on um, not simply the procedures for a dawn raid, but also a dawn raid at home or one of these other types of raid. Practice and then update. So I don't know if we're seeing this as much in the United States yet, Jay, but if uh, these two lawyers are writing about it in the FCPA blog from their London office, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's happening Um in the United Kingdom. So, Jay, what happens uh, when you fight corruption? Does it fight back? Well, uh, we're going to tell you what Rick Messick thinks, and he's writing in his global anti-corruption blog. Corruption's war on the law is the headline of an article Project Syndicate just published. There, a former French magistrate and corruption fighter, Eva Jolie, recounts the fate of those who have dared to confront powerful networks of corrupt officials and those who corrupt them. Maltese investigative journalist Daphne Caruna Galizia was murdered by accomplices of those she was investigating. So was Rwandan anti-corruption lawyer Gustav Makonen, and so too was Brazilian anti-corruption activist Marcelo Miguel de Elia. After a second attempt on his life, Nuhu Rubadu, first chair of Nigeria's Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, the country's premier anti-corruption agency, famously remarked, quote, when you fight corruption, it fights back, unquote. In her article, Madame Jolie, who received numerous threats for investigating and ultimately convicting senior French officials for corruption, explains that violence is just one way of how corruption can fight back. The most recent head of Nigeria's EFCC, was arrested and detained on trumped-up charges of corruption, and Ibrahim Angu has been suspended from office pending further proceedings. 
At the same time, Nigerian anti-corruption activist Lanre Saraju is, as this blog reported last week, being charged with cyber-stalking for circulating documents from a court case that implicate associates of the current attorney general and a massive OPL 245 corruption scandal. This form of intimidation, which Nigerians have dubbed lawfare, has now been exported to Europe. Italian prosecutors are being subjected to both criminal charges and administrative action for having the nerve to prosecute one of Italy's largest companies for foreign bribery. President Biden has declared the global fight against corruption to be a national priority, and he will shortly host a democracy summit where Brazil, Italy, Malta, Nigeria, and Rwanda will be represented at the highest levels. Might he be reminded then which side of the fight they should be on? Tom, why does Walmart want to keep an executive quiet about its compliance program? Jay, this is our second article from the FCPA blog, and it comes to us from Dick Casson, who picked up in an SEC filing that the uh, some of the confidentiality language in the C, retiring CFO Brett Biggs settlement package, and that he um, can't talk about information regarding the Foreign Practices Act investigation and settlement, and. Dick really, uh, he had to speculate because he had no uh, insider knowledge or, or knowledge of the precise reasons, but he gave three reasons why Walmart may want to keep this information uh, private and not public. Number one, Walmart does not want to violate its non-prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice. Every Department of Justice uh, DPA has a non-disparagement clause uh so that uh, no one from at the company or on behalf of the company can contradict the facts under which the company took acceptance or responsibility uh, of said statement of facts. So uh, perhaps they're concerned about that. The uh, second is, as we all know, Walmart spent over $900 million conducting a vast global internal investigation. Uh, more, uh, Much more information was developed than was reported in the uh, Deferred Prosecution Agreement, or rather non-prosecution agreement, even a 20-page statement of facts. So uh, maybe the C-suite at Walmart doesn't want any embarrassing information to get out. Uh, And perhaps third, I found very interesting, Jay, is that Walmart has an interest in preventing the marketing of its compliance advice using its brands and models. Now, we have had a couple of... uh, former CCOs at Walmart out there. Uh, they've really not gone on the speaker circuit too much. Um, Cindy Mooring has her own compliance practice, but um, I don't know how much she may call upon her Walmart experience or market around that. Nevertheless, Dick finds that uh, perhaps Walmart's remediated compliance program or its enhanced compliance strategies that were referenced in the NPA are uh, confidential information and um, unique and valuable to the company's overall business and worth protecting. So, uh, and it may be some other reason uh, we don't know, but uh, interesting uh, pickup by Dick in an SEC filing and speculations as to uh, why a confidentiality agreement, which is not uncommon, but specifically around a company's FCPA investigation and settlement, I think are. So um, interesting stuff. So, Jay, what, uh, what are you seeing about uh, board effectiveness? Before we get to Jay's answer, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. 
Thanks, Tom. This article comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum and Corporate Governance blog. Uh, the writers are Paul D. Nicola, Leah Malone, and Paul Washington. It's rare for corporate directors to receive candid feedback from their company's management teams. The nature of the board of directors' oversight role makes it an uncomfortable proposition, but the view of the boardroom from the C-suite can be illuminating and somewhat surprising. This is why PwC and the conference board asked more than 550 public company C-suite execs to share their perspective on their board's overall effectiveness, their strengths and weaknesses, and their readiness to roll up their sleeves and tackle some of the biggest challenges facing companies today. The results were clear. Most executives say board performance falls a bit short of the mark. This isn't to say that executives were uniformly negative in their assessment. Many agreed that directors had a firm grasp of core matters, such as the company's strategies, risks and opportunities before it, and the priorities for and of its shareholders. Yet most executives had a less than positive view of the overall performance. Asked to rate the effectiveness of their boards, just 29% of the executives gave directors a grade of good or excellent. Most, 55%, said they were doing a fair job overall, and a small minority of 16% graded their effectiveness as poor. While this is not exactly a failing grade, it isn't a resounding endorsement either. Many executives said that the board lacks preparedness, puts too little time into their duties, and have insufficient expertise in some emerging topics such as ESG and cybersecurity, which are high priorities for lawmakers, regulators, and other stakeholders. Many executives question whether the directors on their boards have the right skills, experience, and background to help steer companies through today's uncertain terrain. Nearly 9 out of 10 executives, or 89%, say that at least one of their company's board members needs to be replaced. Executives point to the reluctance of long-tenured directors to retire, in particular as an impediment to board diversity. COVID-19 has been an all-hands-on-deck moment for corporations, placing unprecedented demands on both executive and boards. And as companies continue to refine their strategies for coping with the pandemic's ongoing disruptions, this survey shows that boards still have some work to do in the eyes of their management. As always, we will link to the full survey in our show notes. Uh, Next up, Tom, can you tell us about new OECD ABC suggestions. Right, Jay. So uh, this is the third of our trilogy today from the FCPA blog, Nicola Bonucci and Nat Edmonds. It's a name we haven't uh, said in quite a while, uh, but a well-known contributor to both the FCPA blog and someone we've talked about on this podcast over the years, uh, wrote about a new adoption of a new adoption of a new recommendation by the OECD Working Group on Bribery. It is uh, had some interesting new sections. So, number one, uh, focus on the demand side of the bribe, bribery equation. As I think everyone knows, the FCPA focuses on the supply side. Excuse me, um, focus on the supply side, i.e., companies who pay bribes, and uh, the OECD did as well. And now, uh, the OECD talks about uh, public officials who are on the receiving end of corruption. Two. A new section on non-trial resolutions, i.e. deferred prosecution agreements and non-prosecution agreements. These were somewhat controversial 15 years ago, Jay, but now they've been in place for quite some time and have been uh, 
a great boon to the regulators uh, for a tool in their quiver in the fight against bribery and corruption. Third is protection of uh, what the OECD called reporting persons, what you and I might in the parlance call whistleblowers, and more importantly, how to incentivize compliance around uh, effective internal controls and compliance programs. Fourth, expanded guidance on international corruption and handling of multi-jurisdictional cases. From the remarks from Lisa Monaco in October, uh, Jay, I think it's clear we're going to have uh, increased international cooperation. cooperation uh, and uh, I think three or four of the five largest F- uh, anti-corruption cases in history all have an international component uh, as well, even uh, the FCPA case with Goldman Sachs. And finally, the existing practice of the OECD 13 principles uh, on internal controls, ethics, and compliance has been revised and strengthened based upon the lessons learned. So uh, always great to have the OECD weighing in on evolving topics in compliance, Jay, and it's something that uh, I'm sure I will take a deeper dive into and uh, the uh, compliance profession can use as a template or roadmap going forward. Jay, what do you see uh, or what happens, I should say, when graybeards such as yourself and young bloods work together? Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to give me this one because of my uh, Patriots beard that I've been growing. I started, they were two and four, and now miraculously they're eight and four. So, uh, coincidence? Coincidence? I don't know, but I'm still going to be a gray beard at least until Monday night. So this article comes to us from the Corporate Compliance Insights blog. It's by Carrie Root. And she asks, does that older or younger colleague on your team know something you don't? Maybe it's past time to set aside generational stereotypes and take advantage of the expertise of wisdom they can share. This article discusses how each generation in the workplace can learn from others if they're willing. It wasn't that long ago that the silent generation and baby boomers lamented how different millennials were and expressed concerns about their ability to navigate the workplace. Since 2016, the millennial generation, the oldest of whom turned 40 in 2021, has made up the largest percentage of our workforce and they're emerging as today's leaders. Just as they shook up their elders with their entry into the workforce, as noted in a recent New York Times article, those millennials who disturb the elders are worried about the challenges from Generation Z. So here's Carrie's advice. It's time to stop worrying about change, the next go- that change the next generation is going to bring, and instead explore the value each has to offer. Change is going to happen. That's a given. New generations will redefine our workplace and adapt more easily to technology. No doubt they will disrupt the status quo. That's the norm. The new generations will see older generations as less agile, and it will take time for them to see, understand, and appreciate the perspectives that come with age, the concept called wisdom. Carrie was well into her career when a situation occurred that required cross-generational thinking. She was working with engineers who built, launched, and validated weather satellite centers, sensors and their data on a joint project with NASA and NOAA. After the current team tried unsuccessfully to fix an anomaly using a series of maneuvers designed to solve the problem, the sensor was shut down and the graybeards were called in. Day after day, possible causes were explored and discarded based on experience and insight. 
Toward the end of their second week, the group had what they felt was the cause of the problem and the way to address it. And in the weeks that followed, their insights were borne out, their suggestions restored, and the censor to a nominal condition. The cause was determined through discussion, not from data. There is no data on the viscosity or the temperature of the lubrication oil. The suggestion by the graybeards was to power everything up on the sensor, leave it on for a period of time so the oil could be warmed up, and then try it, and it worked. As technology continues to drive differences in our generations, we're going to see these 360-degree mentoring become the norm. Aging generations will need to become comfortable with reaching back for help, whether it's the current older generations who sought assistance from their younger counterparts in learning how to interact and connect their cable and use their smartphones, or future older generations who will face ever-steepening learning curves. Meanwhile, as they mature, those in younger generations will come to appreciate the insight and perspective their older colleagues bring such as being able to read people and understand their motivations, having patience to work through problems, and understanding the bigger pictures. Every generation can learn from the others and be better all for it. Tom, next up, why is trust in companies shockingly low? Uh, Jay, I'm shocked. Shocked. Gambling trust in Casablanca. Shocked. Gambling in Casablanca. Dogs and cats living together. Uh, rain in the form of the seven plagues. It is just shocking, shocking that there's low investor trust in companies' ESG reporting. Well, Jay, that's because companies uh, admitted in a survey in the 2021 Trust Barometer by Edelman that, uh, or at least um, in the institutional investors, believe that 82% Globally, and 86% in the U.S. believe companies are overstating or exaggerating their ESG achievements. The top three, which investors have the least trust, are DIE, diversity, equity, and inclusion, climate risk change management, and greenhouse gas emissions. Fully 72% of investors polled globally and 62% in the U.S. do not trust companies to meet their ESG commitments. So what does all this mean? Well, Jay, it means that, that trust is down and and I know you're still in shock, uh, probably from the dogs and cats living together uh, line. Uh, but there's a big credibility problem here. And when you have a credibility problem and a credibility gap, you can bet that the regulators are going to come knocking, as in uh, the SEC, about any of the public disclosures companies have made. And if they are false or exaggerated or hopelessly optimistic, uh, there may be repercussions. So, uh, Jay, this is one of the situations where what your mother taught you was correct. Tell the truth. So, speaking of telling the truth, Jay, uh, what does the coolest guy in compliance have for us around uh, senior-level compliance positions? Thanks, Tom. This comes to us from Matt's own personal blog, Radical Compliance. And last week, Matt had a post exploring whether senior-level compliance jobs are being harder, becoming harder to land and some possible reasons why that might be. The post led to numerous compliance officers sending Matt some of their own observations, and with their permission, Matt shared them in this article. First, several compliance officers raised the age-old complaint that companies are cramming compliance duties into the legal department. 
As a result, compliance officers may overlook a job listing that is substantively a compliance role but carries the legal department title. Sometimes this function is getting placed under general counsel and hidden as an associate GC position. Matt's facing uh, this one person was facing this now with a company they're interviewing with, and they think they'll take the position because the pay is right. Okay, now Matt can accept that the hiring practice happens sometimes, but it still strikes him as potentially unwise because it means that the legal department is running the show. For example, he's heard tales of general counsels who don't understand that compliance programs for the FCPA and healthcare's anti-kickback statutes are substantively the same thing. So a veteran anti-kickback professional is usually a better hire than a law firm partner with an FCPA. Compliance is more about running a program than understanding the law, and that point can unfortunately elude many lawyers. Other folks complain to Matt that companies are low-balling the title and authority of a compliance officer with the added irritation of a low-balled salary too. You may have the they say that you may have the opportunity to brief the board like it's a chance to score backstage passes to an Adele show. Gotta love that, Matt. Um, he's finding that the real complication in compliance positions is that they may be posted as lower positions, such as a director, when in fact it should be as a CCO. One veteran compliance officer at a Fortune 500 company with a significant consumer interaction gave a very long and detailed answer that Matt quoted in full. Prior to the pandemic, this person would average on an, an inquiry a month from a recru recruiter and about a quarter from a Fortune 500 company. Over the past 18 months, that number has been zero. Maybe it's because this person's age and maybe it's because they're not actively looking. But here are some theories as to why it's happening. First, there is more of a focus now, as you just said on your last article, Tom, on DEI, ESG and privacy rights. And although privacy is part of the CCO role, it may feel like core compliance is a bit on the back burner. Second, the ongoing trend of combining the GC and CCO role, or at a minimum, having the CCO report into the GC, reduces the number of senior level CCO roles. And third, perhaps many of us who consider ourselves the pioneers in this field, I guess the graybeards, meaning that we're old and we've been doing this work for a long time, are in the most senior positions and clogging up the works, which results in a slowing of the market. This makes a lot of sense to Matt. Corporate compliance does go through evolutionary stages, from financial controls in the 2000 to anti-bribery issues in the early and mid-2010s, to privacy, cybersecurity, and diversity today all of which are surging in interest and importance, and ESG is going to be one of the next stages in the 2020. What's intriguing is that this person is talking about issues rather than the practical challenges of running a program, which fits into the person's other points that perhaps, quote, core competence, core compliance, quote, capabilities, how to perform a risk assessment or build a third-party oversight program, or roll out training, maybe these indeed are now taken for granted and they're put on the back burner. Back burner. The pioneers developed those fundamental capabilities, and now those capabilities are ingrained in organizations. Companies can focus more on leaders with expertise in specific 
issues such as privacy, diversity, ESG, or cyber, and who can inject the know-how directly into the program already running. Matt doesn't know how widespread the state of affairs is, but logically it makes sense. Tom, uh, what is the role of PwC in the current brouhaha between Tesla and J.P. Morgan? Well, Jay, uh, you probably should have handled this one because there's a lot of highfalutin financing in this uh, that probably you're much better at than I am. But it comes to us from our good friend, Francine McKenna, on The Dig. And she takes a deep dive into an aspect of this case that uh, I was unaware of, and that's the role of PwC. Uh, Basically, um, Tesla sold some warrants to PW, excuse me, to J.P. Morgan, uh, that if the stock rose a certain amount, uh, J.P. Morgan would be given X dollars. And that price could be adjusted based upon market conditions. And one of the market conditions was the famous 420 tweet by uh, <laughs> Elon Musk, where he said he was taking the company private at $420 a share, and then his reversal of that. And those two events caused the share price in this warrant to be adjusted. Unfortunately, Tesla adjusted the share price in the warrant, and J.P. Morgan adjusted the uh, share price in the warrant, and they didn't match. Um, Most interestingly, the auditor for both of these companies was PwC. So uh, lots of anomalies in this dispute, and Francine ties it back into a dispute around the financial crisis of 2008, uh, where AIG and Goldman Sachs got into a similar uh, imbroglio over uh, some share prices on some warrants. And so she goes into the detail on that. Then she talks about what's the role of an auditor when uh, they represent both sides, and basically it is they get to charge fees to both sides. Uh, so um, PwC is going to come out at this with a, a lot more money, but this difference in valuation is a very interesting uh, point. And uh, the other interesting fact in all of this, Jay, is that Tesla sold warrants to three other banks in addition to J.P. Morgan. And all uh, J.P. Morgan, or excuse me, all of those other banks, their valuations dovetailed in with Tesla. So there wasn't a dispute uh, which arose when uh, Tesla refused to pay the price that J.P. Morgan alleged that uh, they were due under the warrant. So, like I said, lots of highfalutin financing, but a couple of really under interesting underlying issues is how did the parties have such a divergence in evaluation of the Tesla stock? What was the role of PwC, uh, if any, in all of this? And uh, uh, Francine seems to think this will settle when, because the lawsuit's been filed when Tesla pays, and uh, only at that point will we know uh, the true answer. So, Jay, next up, we go in a very different direction for this week in FCPA because the story is not a written article, but it is a appearance of Mrs. Monitor on a podcast. So you want to tell us about Mrs. Monitor's uh, podcast uh, premiere, uh, what she talked to us about, and what we might look forward to from Mrs. Monitor going forward. 
So, Tom, this did become a, a very happy Hanukkah gift that Rebecca was very happy that you picked her up on uh, This Week in FCPA. Uh, Mrs. Monitor, a.k.a. my brilliant and talented wife, Rebecca Rosen, is a director of field marketing at Cox Business, which is a family-owned private telecommunications company, and they're a leader in providing voice, video, and data services to more than 250 275,000 small and regional businesses. She appeared in this week's Tacos and Tech podcast, where she and host Neil Bloom spoke about the trends she's seen in the business workplace for the past 18 months and how Cox is planning for the new year ahead. My wife grew up in Washington, D.C., in the suburbs, and she received her graduate degree in choreography and the integration of technology from Arizona State University. Shortly thereafter, she moved to L.A., and she found a job in tech working for a boutique consultancy, and she learned about tech there and moved to Telepacific Communications, working for 13 years before leaving her position as a senior director of marketing communications and training. After trying different jobs, she joined Cox Business in 2021, and she focuses there on marketing and product in California. In the telecom sector, Rebecca has seen more change in the last 18 months than she's seen in her entire career. The penetration of the cloud that was expected to slowly occur over the decade has been accelerated due to workplaces adjusting to the pandemic. Cox Business has invented more, invested more than $15 billion in infrastructure and is committed to invest another $10 billion over the next several years. The company is currently focused on how to provide the same and seamless office experience, whether it's in person or online. She states that it's time to get rid of latency in your network and for businesses to look toward the edge services that provide faster cloud connections like Cox Edge. You can listen to Rebecca sharing her thoughts on the future of Internet of Things technology how businesses have responded to pandemic, and how Cox Business aims to help enterprises by providing fast and reliable solutions. So I think there's been a, a lot of the same disruption that we've experienced in the ethics and compliance field, and she's experienced it being on the front line in technology. And um, if you've got a half hour to listen to the podcast, she's quite articulate, and she uh, shines as one of the... Uh, two voices of the Rosens on the internet and we'll have to uh, see Millie and Michaela haven't been on in a while so right now it's just mom and dad but thanks for picking that up Tom and uh, as now is our custom we should move to the podcast and events for the week uh, what's up first sure Jay uh, we had a great week uh, with a really interesting and unique podcast series from the guys at uh, Brothers, rather, at Compliance Line, the Brothers Gallo, Nick, and Geo. And we talked about ROI for your compliance program. But what made it so unique, Jay, was not that it talked about your ROI your company would garner, but what's the ROI of your compliance program internally? And they really focused on this topic that no one is talking about and how compliance officers can use ROI of their compliance program to demonstrate why they need uh, increased budget. So check out Mining the Gold in Compliance, Part 1, ROI on Compliance, Part 2, uh, Extending Compliance Value Across an Organization, 
Part three, compliance and ESG investments. Part four, finance and investing models for compliance. Part five, investment strategies for the compliance professional. Uh, we had our final episode in the great series, Effing Argentina. And this story was a story of exasperation about two parents, a birthday party, and text messaging while driving. Uh, I'm going to kind of leave it at that. Uh, it was really crazy. Uh, we had our final episode this week on the November series of Decompliance Life with Wendy Badger. Uh, those who read Matt's article might want to listen to Wendy's podcast series because Wendy, um, in her final episode, uh, we talked about what's courage and what's personal courage because she's made several leaps of faith in her career. Uh, one time she took a downgrade in her position because the company she went to had greater opportunity so it's not always about getting a, new, a newer, bigger, or better title and a bigger salary. Sometimes you have to make a lateral move to uh, head up the ladder. On the Compliance Podcast Network, we're thrilled to announce a new podcast with Com- Professor Karen Woody, our new colleague on everything compliance. It's called Once Upon a Trading Law, the History of Insider Trading. Jay, what makes this podcast so unique is that Karen interviews students from her insider trading class. So she's a professor at Washington and Lee and uh, is a SEC uh, expert, and she's teaching insider trading. And so she brings her students onto the podcast. It's the first time uh, we've had that format on the Compliance Podcast Network. Jay, if I could, I'd like to talk about a great, I mean great, ECI webinar um, Oh, yeah, I'll be on it, too. But also Mike Volkov, Kerry Pinman, Dr. Pat Harnett, and Skip Lowney. And we're going to talk about the intersection of compliance and E&C programs. So if you want to listen to an all-star panel and Tom Fox, well, check us out Wednesday, December 15th from 2 to 3.30 Eastern. Jay, uh, AMI has some pretty exciting uh, news coming up. So you want to tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I'd like to give everyone a sneak peek and sneak peek into a series that's dropping next week on Tom's Compliance Podcast Network, and it's called Not Your Father's Monitor. And this is a series we're going to take a a look at five different professionals at Affiliated Monitors, and they're going to talk about what they do and their specific specialty of uh, work at AMI. And this was all kind of crystallized uh, after... Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco made her speech about the increased needs for monitors. And we thought about, well, how does that uh, how is that demonstrated by the different folks that we have at uh, AMI? So kicking off will be Bethany Hengsbach talking about white collar crime. She'll be followed by Mikhail Reeder-Gordon, who's going to talk about the global aspects of the new DOJ monitors focus. Uh, Christina Ravello, who Tom has had on before, she's going to take a look at how ENC assessments help drive more compliance companies. Uh, Jesse Kaplan will talk about antitrust and healthcare, and the man who started it all, Vin Siani, the founder of Affiliated Monitors, will wrap things up and take a look at where monitors are going in 2022 and beyond. And as always, it's going to be run by Tom Fox, who not only is an expert in ethics and compliance, but he loves talking about monitorships too. So please tune in next week on the Compliance Podcast Network. Well, with that, Jay, uh, we're at the end. you want to take us home? Sure. 
if anybody would like to get in touch with Tom, who is the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I am uh, Mr. Monitor, married to Mrs. Monitor and Jay Rosen. You can reach me at the initial J R O S E N at affiliatedmonitors.com. And so we would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 279 for the week ending December 3rd, 2021, the Happy Hanukkah edition. We thank you for spending either part of your week or weekend with us. And we look forward to getting in touch with you next week when we'll take a look at this week in FCPA. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you'll check out the latest edition of the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, where Gwen looks at the international scourge of human trafficking, and more importantly, the response a corporation and compliance professional can make to help fight this scourge. Once again, Hidden Traffic, hosted by Gwen Hassan on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.